This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Ageist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker. Go to insidetracker.com/age to save twenty percent on all their products. Get yourself a dashboard to your inner health. Welcome to episode ninety-two of the SuperAge podcast. This will be dropping on July the thirteenth, twenty twenty-two. So how's everybody doing this week? I hope everybody's having a great week. Middle of July, you know, summer's great. Trees are blooming, the bees are buzzing. (laughs) What's not to like? This week on the Toddcast, we're going to have Dr. Todd Hurst. And Todd's going to come back and talk to us about a problem that's really much more prevalent than I thought, uh, which is blood pressure. And high blood pressure causes just a huge amount of wreckage in the body. It does all kinds of bad things, and there's a lot of things that cause it, and there's a lot of things we can do pretty easily to bring it down before we get into medications and other things. And, you know, Todd was a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. He really knows what he's talking about with this stuff. So we're going to get with him in just a second. We have a Google call-in number. So the Super Age call-in number. And you can call us, and you can ask us a question, and we'll do our best to answer it on the air. In fact, ask us something really hard. Try and stump us. We love that. <laughs> that, that number, in case you want to know, and in case you want to call us, is 801-871-5291. 801-871-5291. Give us a shout. And um, especially all the stuff that um, Dr. Todd's going to be talking about, anything about blood pressure, cardiology, anything around that. So bring it on. Um, We'll do our best to answer it. Uh, Right now, without further ado, we're going to bring on one of the callers that we got this week and do our best to answer the question. Hi, David. This is Andrew Perry. Uh, Listen, I wanted to ask about uh, bone density and uh, what the... What, what you know about the state of the art, uh, it was traditionally believed that uh, bone density uh, decreased after the age of about 35 and uh, that that was irreversible. Uh, there is a uh, dentist, a uh, New York dentist by the name of uh, Dr. Belfort, memory serves, uh, who claims that he can uh, stimulate bone growth uh, in and around the mouth uh, by uh, applying pressure strategically uh, with the use of a, an orthodontic device that he uh, developed. Uh, I was wondering if you knew anything about that, and uh, is there any application that, uh, I don't know, any similar research or any similar application that you're aware of uh, that could stimulate uh, improvements in the skeletal, uh, skeletal uh, bone uh, density improvements uh, after the age of 35. Um, let me know if there's anything that you're aware of. Uh, just point me in the right direction. I would be very grateful. Thank you. Hey, Andrew, thank you for that question. Um, I am somewhat familiar with the doctor. I think his name is Dr. Belfort. Um, and I believe he is mentioned in the James Nestor book, Breath. 
And yes, his apparatus sounds absolutely medieval. I, you know, let me preface all this. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist, but I talked to a lot of them. I'm, I'm not sure if I would put that thing in my mouth. Um, but, you know, who knows? Maybe it works. The, your other question about bones. So a few things here. You want to make sure you're getting enough of the basic minerals that build bones. And so there are tests for that. Um, one of the sponsors of this show is Inside Tracker. Um, I recommend them or someone else to make sure that you're getting, you have the right mineral balance to actually build bones. Now, the next thing to know is to actually build bone density, you need to apply load. The way I apply load is I pick up heavy stuff. So squats, deadlifts, stuff like that. That's going to load the whole body, not the little stretchy bands, but like real heavy stuff. That's going to stimulate bone growth. Now, keep in mind, bone density can be increased, but it's it's sort of slow. It's a slow process. Like bones of all the stuff that grows in our bodies, of the soft tissue, muscle, tendons, all that stuff, bone is sort of the slowest growing part of that. Now, there is something, there is a device that I came across a couple of years ago that I was quite skeptical of, um, but actually seems to work really well. It's called OsteoStrong. I'm not affiliated with them, but they brought me in and they said, hey, test this out. And what it involves is it's a, it's a series of machines where you you push with either your arms or your legs for like short durations. I think it's like 15 or 20 seconds and you do it, um, I think it's like once a week they recommend. And it, it you can apply a tremendous load, a tremendous stress to your your bones by doing this without actually like using the joints. So if that's a problem... You might want to check them out. I think they've got franchises around the country. Um, my other friend, Dr. Mike Roizen at the Cleveland Clinic, what he recommends is you get on a stair. You go two stairs up on a staircase, jump off it, land on the floor, um, on your feet, <laughs> and do that 40 times. So the the impact, so it's not a huge impact, but it's um, it's enough of an impact to cause the stimulation of increasing bone density. Um, decreasing bone density is a big problem, especially for women as they age. And it's something that, at least at the Cleveland Clinic, what Mike was telling me, they recommend people get a bone density test every year. And I think that is a wise thing. You can get them done um, you know, in a sort of hospital setting where there's, a, there's another company out there called DexaScan where you can also get them done. Um, DexaScan is like really interesting because it'll scan not only your bone density and and tell you you know where things if you're out of balance but also like your muscle and your fat composition which i find super interesting i recommend people to do it once a year just so that you're establishing a tracking trajectory of what's happening with your bone density is it an issue do you think it may be an issue in the future or is everything fine and you know as they say you don't know where things are at until you test and track so check that out. Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Thank you for calling in, and I hope that was helpful. We're going to get with Dr. Todd Hurst after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the dashboard to your inner health. Just as a car has a dashboard so you can tell how fast you're going and how much gas you have, you need a dashboard for your inner health. You need to know what's going on inside your body if you're going to optimize it. You need some way to monitor what's going on inside your body. And then once you know what's going on inside your body, 
you need some way to help optimize that. And this is what I get from Inside Tracker. With their 43 biomarkers that they're testing, along with the genetics that they test before, I know what I should be eating to really optimize where I want to be. And I get to choose that target of where I want to be. Am I working on brain health? Am I working on longevity? Is there something with my fitness that I'm interested in optimizing? The app will make recommendations personalized to me based on my blood work and my genetics. And that's something that I just think is invaluable. Um, it's not a replacement for seeing my doctor. It's not a replacement for any of the other professionals in my life. It is an additive, but it is an additive that is with me every day, all day. And I can consult it and I can see what should I be doing right now. And then I can test again and see what changes have happened. If you go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, you'll save 20% on all their products. Hey, Todd, how are you doing today? I'm great, David. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I just came back from the gym and um, I feel awesome. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Like, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, the going to the gym, maybe not my favorite thing to do every morning, but it's the favorite thing that I've done that day often. Oh, man, do I identify with that. I, I, I was up this morning and I, I was foolishly didn't go to sleep early enough last night, so I didn't get quite enough sleep. I was like a half hour sleep deprived. And I was like, Oh God, am I really going to go do this? And, um, I did it and now I feel awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I did the same thing. Like, you know, it, it, I, I've realized even on the days I don't feel the best, I just go, I, I will do the lamest workout of all time, but as long as I'm there, I get the benefits of it. And yeah, that was, that was a remarkable learning thing for me. Any, any movement is better than no movement. Amen. So today, um, I got you on to talk about blood pressure. Um, One of my favorite topics, interestingly <laughs> enough, you probably don't hear that from doctors very often. But... <laughs> no, I don't. In fact, that's what, <laughs> the first time I've heard that. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things that I, you know, I've given a lot of talks over the years to other doctors, you know, called continuing medical education. And uh, I, I kind of found my niche around blood pressure, uh, you know, because one, it's so important in preventing heart disease, but also I recognize that a lot of doctors really don't have great expertise in, in hypertension is what it's called in medicine. Like, you know, it, it kind of falls between the cracks among the, the specialists. And I, you know, I, I think that that's a, a real missed opportunity because blood pressure can have a devastating effect on our health when it's not treated well. So let's, uh, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, what is high blood pressure? Okay. So high blood pressure is a, it's, it's interesting that it's, it's a little bit confusing because the definitions have changed over time and there's still some debate among physician organizations as to what that level is. But now the generally accepted definition of hypertension or high blood pressure is a blood pressure that is greater than 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury. And, and I should emphasize it's not, you don't have to have both over to have hypertension. Just one is, is qualifies for uh, high blood pressure. Uh, so the, now the, the accepted definition, normal blood pressure is less than 120 over 80. That between 120 and 130 uh, is uh, considered pre-hypertension. 
And then greater than 130 over 80 is hypertension or high blood pressure. It, but why is this a problem? Um, why do I even care if I have high blood pressure? Yeah, so high blood pressure is the second biggest contributor to the number one cause of death and disability, which is heart disease. It also is the primary contributor to stroke and the second leading uh, or second uh, strongest factor for kidney failure as well behind diabetes. So this is a stunning statistic for, especially for a problem that we know exactly how to treat. Like we don't need to, you know, spend another dime on research to understand how to best treat high blood pressure. And yet this condition, which kind of flies under the radar from doctors and from patients accounts for 1100 deaths a day in the United States, 1100 preventable deaths a day. Wow. Okay. So how many people have high blood pressure. They must be uh, yeah, about 120, a lot. yeah, about 120 million adults ah! in the United States have <laughs> hypertension. Oh my but, god. You know, here's a here's a stunning statistic. I mean, of course it goes up as you get older, but it's almost universal as we age. People that are over the age of 74, 85% of them have high blood pressure. What why is that? Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the things that is being sorted out, you know, and I think one of the reasons why blood pressure is kind of flown under the radar. When I was in medical school uh, back in the day, uh, we described blood pressure as essential or <laughs> interestingly enough, benign. It would be called benign hypertension uh, for a condition that is anything but benign. But the, the, the teaching was that about 95% of people have hypertension, and we don't have an underlying reason for that. And about 5% have a reason, like an endocrine problem uh, was most common. Uh, but I think over time, we're re re recognizing that hypertension is not an inevitable aspect of growing older. There's a lot of control that people have over their uh, their, their propensity for developing high blood pressure. And I think that's one of the opportunities that we have is to help people understand how much they have. I, before we get into the, the control, I want to understand um, possibly what the causes are. And I, um, so your heart's a pump, right? So it's pumping out a, a certain amount of blood at a, I'm, my guess is more or less throughout your lifetime, the same pressure but it's pumping them into a system that may have less elasticity in the, like do your veins expand and contract? And is that, is that what's happening there? Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's a big contributor to it is the stiffness of our blood vessels as we get older and what leads to stiffer blood vessels besides time, besides getting older is when we're not doing the things that we know can be good for preventing heart disease and dementia and, and stroke, uh, such as, uh, you know, sedentary lifestyle, um, not eating healthy food for some people, a high salt diet, uh, having an unhealthy amount of weight. Uh, those are all factors that are important contributors, but there's also you know, the effect of stress uh, over time, alcohol is a strong driver of high blood pressure for a number of people not treating sleep apnea. Uh, so there's multitude of things that are contributing to uh, high blood pressure. Um, okay. So let's, 
let's say somebody comes into your office and they're, uh, I'm just going to pick a number here. So say it's, they come in and they're like, we'll say like 160 over 80. And um, what are the behavioral changes? Well, I guess there's probably a lot more here, right? So there's probably some, probably person's carrying some extra weight. Um, you know, what are the, first, let's talk about what are the other things that you see going along with this? So is it, are we looking at uh, blood sugar imbalances? We're looking at uh, cholesterol problems. We're looking at what, because it, my guess is this sort of comes as in a package. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I uh, often will say the biggest problem in healthcare is what, what doctors call cardiometabolic disease, but what, what that is. So, so, you know, most people don't know what that means, but when we talk about the components of that, we all know what those are because a lot of the people have those. So it's elevated blood pressure. It's uh, cholesterol that is unhealthy. So it's not always higher, you know, like for HDL or the, the quote unquote, good cholesterol, that one's lower. Uh, elevated blood sugars, and then unhealthy weight, and really more body composition. So when we talk about an unhealthy weight, probably a better measure of that is less about the weight and more about the abdominal circumference or how much weight people are uh, carrying in the middle. Those are the factors that are driving the really epidemics we have of heart disease, of stroke, of cancer, of dementia. And so Blood pressure plays a prominent role in that, but also is a part of that syndrome of poor health that is, you know, affecting most people these days. So um, this patient that comes into you, um, what would be, give me like the top five things that they should do, um, you know, uh, we can get into the meds in a second, but sort of behavioral stuff. What what should somebody be doing on a daily basis to bring down their blood pressure? Yeah. So I, the thing that I emphasize to my patients is that I, in, in my estimation, and I've been a cardiologist for a very long time, in my estimation, about 75% of blood pressure can be uh, treated and, and, and even mostly cured without medications. So what are those things that are so important in treating blood pressure and potentially curing blood pressure? Well, one is regular physical activity. No, no surprise. I know everybody knows the, you know, being regularly active is a healthy thing for us, but it is a remarkably effective treatment strategy for high blood pressure. Uh, nutrition has a big role in that. And you know, it, it uh, oftentimes salt gets talked about in regards to blood pressure. We can we can certainly explore that more. Salt isn't always the most important thing for blood pressure; it just depends on the individual. But you know, eating a typical American or Western diet that's high in uh, processed, uh, highly processed foods and high sugar added, refined grains lots of preservatives, foods, those are also strong drivers of hypertension. Uh, alcohol use, uh, not uncommon. Uh, you know, I think the, 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 the discussion around alcohol is a complex one as well, but we have really good evidence that, that maybe a drink a day is, on average isn't going to raise your blood pressure, but more than that can uh, I always, I also ask people about sleep apnea, whether they have signs or symptoms of sleep apnea. 
Uh, about 80% of people who do have sleep apnea don't know that they have it. And that can be a prime driver of high blood pressure. Uh, and then I also ask people about other medications they may be taking. Uh, for the biggest one is the anti-inflammatory medicines. Like, you know, they're called NSAIDs, but Advil, Motrin, Naproxen, those type of medicines used on a regular basis can also raise blood pressure. Um, let's go back to the physical activity one. So rather than just telling someone um, you need to be physically active, let's define that. What, what kind of physical activity are we talking about? Um, what quantity and what regularity? Yeah, so the, 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 the type of physical activity that is talked about predominantly and probably has the best research evidence in lowering blood pressure is aerobic activity. So this really should be a foundation, a base of physical activity for anybody who's interested in living a long life and, and optimizing their blood pressure. And the guidelines tell us that uh, a minimum recommended amount is 150 minutes a week of moderate activity or 75 minutes of vigorous activity. But I, I guess I'll put two things to, or, or further clarify two things on that. One, any activity is beneficial, as you alluded to earlier in this. So even 10 minutes a day has been shown to have significant health benefits. Uh, and there is incremental benefit to doing more aerobic activity, at least up to some point. And, you know, what that point is, we don't really have a definition of, but it's, you know, probably more in the 400 plus minutes where maybe the, 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 the benefits of aerobic activity tail off and even maybe uh, turn into a negative. But I think that even uh, more important if your goals are long, healthy life is avoiding frailty, frailty, avoiding weakness. We lose muscle mass as we go. So I think resistance training or strength training really needs to be an important aspect of everybody's plan if they want to live the best life. And then, you know, on top of that, the third part that I often talk to my patients about is the purposeful movement, I kind of combine core, uh, purposeful movement, balance training, because the, you know, avoiding falls, avoiding, uh, maintaining our stability is really important as we get older as well. Um, I'm so happy you opened that box. Um, <laughs> so, and now you're in my world. <laughs> so aerobic activity is, um, sort of uh, the level of activity, um, the threshold just before you get anaerobic. Um, and in classics sort of um, zone training, they make five zones and they, they call it zone two training. And that's sort of um, 60 to 70% of your maximum heart rate. And there are different ways that you can calculate that. Um, you can just figure that out by doing something really hard for about 10 minutes and see what your heart rate is. Or you know, the simple way is uh, 220 minus your age will more or less get you in the ballpark. And then 60 to 70% of that at, um, you know, like you were saying, like a half hour, 45 minutes. I mean, the way I look, the way I look at this, Todd, is that, you know, the bottom of, of the pyramid of movement and exercise and fitness is aerobic. Like everything sits on top of your aerobic system. And then the next level up, is strength training. Um, and you need, as you said, your muscles, unless you use them and you put 
load on them. I'm not talking about little stretchy bands like load. Um, they will diminish your bone density will diminish um, all that sort of stuff. And the nice thing that I like about strength training is you're building muscle volume, which will also help with your blood sugar because then you, you get a, sort of a bigger glucose sink. Um, and if you do fall down and we all fall down once in a while, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to get hurt. <laughs> you're just going to get up. So um, yeah, those are sort of the two biggies. <laughs> yeah. If we could, if we could put all the benefits that we have in exercise into a pill, that would be a $10 billion medication. Yeah, ab yeah absolutely. So um, that's, that's great. I, I personally, I'm really big on quantifying things. So when people, when somebody says to me, you know, um, eat better, I want to know like, like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, exercise more, put, put some numbers on that. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> Cause I'm going to get, otherwise I get paralyzed, right? Like if I don't have the specifics, I, I just get, I, I'm just in the weeds and then I end up doing nothing. Yep. No, that's a, 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 a very common, I, I think barrier to people is they, they, they want to do things that help them feel better. They want to live a long, healthy life, but they just don't have clarity in, where do I start and how much do I need to do? And if you can give people that clear path, then that is an incredibly valuable uh, tool to give them to be able to achieve what they are looking to achieve. Um, so I, I want to go back on the track of blood pressure. Um, I had a conversation with um, a gentleman a couple months ago and he had high blood pressure and he assumed that this was just at some grim reality he needed to accept. And uh, I said, well, actually you can, you have some agency in the situation here. <laughs> you can do something. <laughs> and I just uh, quickly showed him how to do four by four box breathing, which is you inhale four, hold four, exhale four, hold four and repeat. And he, um, he thought that this was just some like, you know, California woo woo. And I said, well, no, actually the Navy SEALs do this. Um, they call it tactical breathing. The yogis call it yogic breathing. But I, I said, you know, try it. And he had, um, because he had high blood pressure, he, blood pressure, he traveled with a blood pressure cuff and he saw me the next day and he was astonished. He was like, oh my God, <laughs> my blood pressure fell. Um, so what are, what are the sort of things like that that people can do? Because that's a, that would be a, a stress lowering activity. Yeah. So, you know, I think you bring up a really good point in this and, and, and something that I like to emphasize early on is that it's most of the time, not just one thing. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like, okay, well, if I start exercising, my blood pressure will get better for some people it is, but usually it's some combination of the factors that we know are important in good health. And one of those is stress. Um, you know, stress is uh, something that has been maybe flown under the radar in medicine because we just don't have great research evidence around managing stress and its health benefits. We, we, every doctor knows how impactful stress is on health. We see people all day long who are impacted, either their stress is driving their illness or their illness is driving their stress. Uh, but it's a difficult thing to put in a research study because one, it's hard to quantify, right? Like what's, what's stressful to you may not be stressful to me and vice versa. Uh, and then, um, you know, how do we define that? Like, how do we define what that intervention is and what the results are? But 
I will say that that's something that maybe early in my career wasn't as prominent in my thoughts, but over time, I've come to have an amazing amount of respect for how impactful stress is for a lot of people. And for many, it is the primary driver of their blood pressure, of their heart disease, of their um, uh, other their weight issues. You know, they can't get where they need to go until they figure out how to manage stress better. Yeah, I'm going to just tell you a little story. I, I'm, you know, I like to sort of monitor myself and do experiments on myself and see what, what, what does what to me. And uh, I got a continuous glucose monitor. I had my doctor prescribe one of these for me. I love these. Uh, I love those. They're amazing. <laughs> and he, you know, he was like, well, why do you want this? And I said, well, cause I want to know like, um, you know, sort of how things affect my blood sugar. And he's like, okay, you know, whatever. So I went to Walmart and I got the cheapest one I could get. So it was like, I don't know, it was like 70 bucks and uh, they're good for two weeks. And I did it uh, two rounds for a month. And what I've noticed, I initially thought the thing that I was going to learn was how do different foods affect me? And which I did. Um, there were certain sort of carbohydrates, um, like for instance, white rice affects me very strongly. Um, a baked potato, which you would think is sort of in the same family, um, doesn't really affect me at all. Um, so it's, you know, different people, your biome, your genetics, different. So that was kind of interesting. But the, the fascinating thing I found, Todd, was the effect of stress, any kind of stress on my blood sugar, um, which I was just not prepared for that. So by any kind of stress, I mean, if I'm exercising, of course, you know, your, your, your body is, um, you know, putting more sugar in, in my bloodstream so that I can you know, fuel my muscles. But also something as simple as like, if I sit in the sauna, I'm experiencing a hormetic stress adaptation response because, you know, your, your body's like, oh, this thing is really hot. You're, you're stressed. And, and my blood sugar would go up in the same way. If I had a stressful phone call, if I had to do something, you know, some emotional stress, my blood sugar went up. And, um, I thought that was astonishing. I had no idea that that's, that that would happen. Yeah. Isn't that remarkable? I had that same experience when I did the continuous glucose monitoring where I had mornings where I, my blood sugar is high in the morning before I've even eaten anything. And I'm yeah. like, where in the world did this come from? And it took me a while to realize, you know what? It is a stress reaction for me. And when you understand the physiology though, it all starts to make sense. Like, you know, what happens under stress? Like, you know, there's lots of definitions of this, but it's your, you know, your body uh, trying to adapt to some kind of challenge. You know, it used to be uh, being chased by the saber-toothed tiger. Now it's, uh, you know, an unpaid bill or an email or, you know, whatever those those things are. And what our body does is that it, it's preparing us to, you know, fight or flight. And, and so our adrenaline or epinephrine and norepinephrine go, levels go up, our cortisol levels go up. All of those things are, you know, designed to, to clamp down on blood vessels, increase our blood pressure, uh, as well as, uh, you, you know, release energy into our uh, bloodstream so that we can run. But what happens is we don't run, right? We just sit there and, 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 and feel that stress reaction and 
sometimes monitoring of these physiologic parameters like glucose. And, and that's why I love the continuous glucose monitoring. Not only are you going to learn stuff, uh, but you get that immediate feedback that helps you correlate what's driving things. Getting a measure three months later, not as helpful, but getting that immediate feedback, very, very helpful. Yeah. And I think one of the things here is, you know, life is stressful, right? Like, you know, <laughs> that's just how it is. Things are going to happen that are going to, you're going to get a stress response from. And what I've been trying to work on, Todd, is my recovery from the stress response. So, you know, um, uh, a 10 minute, a 20 minute sort of like stress thing. Okay, fine. But to then disengage that and then bring everything down, I think that that's, you know, as we're talking about blood pressure, that seems to me a learned skill that could be very useful to people. I, I couldn't agree more. And I found that same, uh, I learned that same thing about myself. So I, I believe that when there are events that occur that lead to an acute stress, those are those are, are just a reaction, right? Like that's our, our inner brain that is just going to react to that. We don't really have control over it, but where we have the control is what is our process after that initial stress reaction. And as you state so clearly, you know, being able to disengage, to, to take that more objective viewpoint of this and reframe things from, you know, where that stress started with to, to what is, you know, what, 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 what's really actionable here, what, what, what's really important understanding that is an incredibly valuable skill that I I'm, I'm still working on trying to, to perfect. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, the, uh, as I mentioned, like the, the Navy SEALs with the four by four tactical breathing, they use that when they're in a situation where people are shooting at them and they need to calm down to make some kind of decision. Um, you know, these are, these are highly skilled people who are, who are, excel at being able to control that sympathetic response but it's i think for us sort of normal people it's it's very useful to just understand that we actually have agency over our bodies um, and it can be um, a breathing thing or like a really simple one is if you're you know you're sitting in your chair and you're stressed about something just get up and walk for like five or ten minutes and that will, it sort of disengages your amygdala, your, um, which is sort of your fear response in your brain and things will settle down and you'll take out that, um, because to me, Todd, it's not so much that, um, acute stress, it's the chronic stress, right? It's like staying at that elevated stress level. That's where the problems happen. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And, and I love that technique as well is just getting up in physical movement. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we know that those things help us. Like how many people, I don't I, this is something that happens to me all the time. And I'm pretty sure it happens to most people is that you have a problem uh, during the day, you get a good night's sleep and the next day, it's just not as important. Like you just kind of figure things out. Right. Same thing with uh, physical activity. Like I, 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 I say this a lot that I think I do physical, regular physical activity or what led to me making physical activity and a prominent part of my life was less about 
my physical conditioning and more about my mental conditioning because I knew how much better I felt, how much more centered and grounded I was when I was regularly active. And again, I think all, all the things we're talking about here, um, you know, I think you, you throw a statistic early on. It's something like 46% of people have high blood pressure and only half of them it's controlled. And I, I have to believe that some of the reason that it's not controlled is, again, like this gentleman I met who just felt it was just like some grim reality he had to accept. When, in fact, we do have a tremendous amount of agency over these things. And a lot of it is like really simple, um, you know, and you get up and go for a walk, like learn how to breathe, things like this. And you can and you can disengage. It's that what I find sometimes taught is like, you know, I've been in situations where I get in this sort of loop of this like anxiety stress loop. And it becomes very difficult if I don't take some kind of action to disengage, I can stay in that loop for like a long time um, and, you know, have health consequences because of it. But if I understand I that's like now I can choose to do that if I want to do that. But generally, I choose not to do that. I know how to disengage out of that. Yeah, I think that's a human nature thing. You know, I, I talk to patients on a regular basis who are not acting out of fear. You know, they feel like they're not going to have control over the situation. Yeah. And so they right. avoid going to the doctor. They avoid right. uh, taking the medications, whatever that is. And I think that's one of the roles that are, you know, but I feel like my important role with my patients is to let them know how much control they have. And, you know, earlier I said 75% of blood pressure is, you know, potentially curable without medications, which is a stunning statistic in itself, but I'll say it's almost a hundred percent of people, their blood pressure could be much better with, you know, without medication. So some people just have a genetic predisposition or, or whatever it is that they're just, they're going to need blood pressure medications. That, that's just part right. of it, but they will need a lot less if they're doing these baseline foundational treating the root causes of their blood pressure uh, they're going to be taking a lot less medicine than they would be if they're not doing those things. Uh, and, and I just want to say like, I am not anti-medication. <laughs> if you Me have either. high blood pressure, this is, <laughs> you need to bring it down, whatever you've got to do. Yeah. I, I, I do want to talk about blood pressure medications in more depth, yeah. but I, I think that's something that is, you know, important that I want to emphasize as well is the, the, uh, adherence to blood pressure medications, well, medications in general, but blood pressure medications in particular is just terrible. Like, you know, doctors, we're, we're fooling ourselves when we write these prescriptions and give them to people, uh, especially if we didn't take the time to explain to them how important this is, you know, what the potential side effects are, what the benefits are, what the choices are people just aren't taking those medications. Maybe half of the medications are not being taken on a regular basis or as intended. And it's one of the things that I think is be important for anybody who's taking blood pressure medications. If you're not certain about what that is and what it's doing for you, have the conversation with your doctor to find out because just deciding not to take the medication is going to put you at unnecessary risk. 
And you know what's, um, I was speaking to somebody about high blood pressure and they were, they used this sort of, I like visuals. And what they said was like, well, you have like, think of it as sort of a pipe. And at a certain volume velocity of like, you know, water going through the pipe, everything is, is fine. Everything's good. But if you, if you turn up that pressure, what happens is it starts to erode the inside of the pipe that you've got this very high velocity, um, you know, liquid going through your veins, which actually corrode them um, or erode them. Um, and that's going to cause you a lot of damage. And I, so I, I, I think about that. Is that correct? Is that about right? Or am I just making that up? No, I think that's a good analogy. You know, we, the doctors talk about the endothelial lining. That's that one cell lining around the blood vessel that is so impactful in the um, ability of that blood pressure to adapt to different blood volume and blood pressure. Uh, over time, things like high blood pressure, like smoking, like sedentary lifestyle, like high cholesterol, like high blood sugars, all of those things impact that endothelial lining so that it becomes dysfunctional. It starts to build up stiffness. It builds up yeah. cholesterol uh, plaques in there. And the manifestation of that ultimately is heart attacks, is stroke, and is dementia, the things that we really want to avoid. Yeah, I don't want any of that. <laughs> Thus, I went to the gym this morning. Um Hey, so I want to ask you, um, I had a, uh, a note come in from somebody in email um, asking about AFib and my thoughts on AFib. And I don't give medical advice. Um, and I, I knew I, I was going to have you on the show today. So can we take a second and talk about AFib, about what that is? Absolutely. So AFib is a epidemic now in the country. It's the number one heart rhythm problem cardiologists deal with. I will tell you any cardiologist who works in a hospital, they will tell you they're overrun with people with AFib. Um, so AFib is a uh, heart rhythm condition where the top chambers of the heart, the atria, uh, they, they instead of having beating in a coordinated fashion, which is normal, they have electrical signals uh, going all over the atrium in a chaotic way. And so those atrium are just quivering uh, the results of atrial fibrillation are, are twofold. For most people, it drives the heart rate up because all those electrical signals are bombarding the bottom chambers of the heart, the main pumping chambers of the heart. Most people in AFib have fast heart rates that are irregular. Uh, but the biggest concern around atrial fibrillation is what is associated with atrial fibrillation. So people with AFib have a five times higher risk of stroke. Uh, the likely mechanism is that blood clots can form in those top chambers, the atria, because the blood flow is a little stagnant in the crevices and blood clots can form and break off and cause stroke, often really big strokes uh, as well. But other things that AFib is associated with include a three times higher risk of heart failure and doubles the risk of dementia and death. So AFib is a very big problem and it's not easy to treat with our medical, typical medical treatments. The medications are minimally effective. Ablation is better, but what is remarkably effective at treating atrial fibrillation is if you're overweight, losing weight getting more active, minimizing alcohol use, uh, treating sleep apnea, 
uh, treating your cholesterol, getting your blood sugars good. These things are incredibly effective at treating atrial fibrillation. That just sounds, um, I'm envisioning, again, I'm envisioning my heart sort of short circuiting and going boom, 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 boom. And yeah, it's yeah. A, that it, most people have very irregular and very fast heart uh, rates. And so there's other reasons to have heart rhythm problems that uh, other types of short circuit problems, but atrial fibrillation is the one we see the most commonly. So high blood pressure, bad. Um, the, so the ways that we bring it down is we control our stress. We exercise and not just, you know, of course, any movement better than no movement, but you can improve the, the quality and the kind of movement if you want to benefit your health. And you, you know, you do that by paying attention to what, what you're doing. Um, and you know, with the diet, so I'm guessing no trans fats um, and probably lower saturated fats. So you get your lipid profile better. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, th I think the biggest thing that I start with, with people is understanding the foods that are bad for our metabolism and bad for their metabolism. And that is, you know, universally, everybody agrees the highly processed foods, nobody's thinking that that is, is good for our health. And, and for a lot of people, just minimizing those foods can have a remarkable uh, benefit to their, you know, their, their, their health goals, whether it's cholesterol or blood pressure or blood uh, sugars. Beyond that, salt is something that needs to be paid attention to. Now, you know, we've learned that salt is more complex than we used to think. A lot of the population studies of salt haven't really shown strong correlation. But what I will tell you as from a clinician standpoint, it makes perfect sense to me because some people are salt sensitive and some people are not. And so identifying whether you are one of those people or not can be really important. Um, I, I had a patient uh, not long ago who had moved to Las Vegas and uh, he, you know, we, we've been, you know, doctor patient uh, relationship for a very long time and, uh, you know, said our goodbyes. And he called me about a month after he'd gotten there and he says, you know, all of a sudden my blood pressure is just crazy high. I don't know what's going on with the, like, why? And I'm like, Hmm, that's really strange. Cause he'd been well-controlled for a decade or so before that. So I said, well, well, what, what are you doing? And he says, well, you know, our house wasn't ready yet. So we're staying in a casino. And I said, oh, so what are you eating? And he's like, oh, we're eating the, like the buffet every day. And, you know, oh my God, out all the time. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I think I found the problem here. I think you are, your blood pressure is up because you're, you're, uh, you're getting a ton of salt in your diet. So, so for those people that are salt sensitive, I, the things that I emphasize is where we get most of our blood, our salt is not from the salt shaker. I mean, that's about five to 10% of our salt intake. Most of the salt we're getting or sodium we're getting is from highly processed foods and restaurants. And so for you know my patients who are salt sensitive, oftentimes just cutting out the highly processed foods is what they need to get their salt back to where they, they want it to be. I, and this is something I, I just recently learned that, as you said, some people are salt sensitive and some people aren't. And I've, um, like when I go to the gym, I actually add a lot of sodium in my water 
um, so that I can absorb it better. And I was really hesitant to do that initially because I, I'd always thought like all salt, all bad for all people, but I've since learned that's not the case. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a pendulum. You know, we were in this uh, era where all salt was considered bad and, you know, the CDC came out and said, oh, we should have uh, less than 1500 milligrams of sodium in our diet. And then subsequent research research came out and showed that uh, there was actually a higher mortality rate in people that were down taking that low of a sodium uh, levels. And again, all these studies were observational though. So, you know, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Like they're not proof of cause and effect. They're just, right. you know, where there's something that we're noticing in this. And, and as I said, now it's maybe swung the other way where there's a lot of people saying salt isn't important at all. And the truth is it's right in the middle. It just really depends on that individual. For some people, it's critically important for others. It doesn't really make that big of a difference. Yeah, actually, my, my wife has uh, low blood pressure. And so when she gets up in the morning, she has to drink um, like a lot of water with salt in it. Um, otherwise, she's kind of dizzy from, you know, low blood pressure. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I have patients like that that struggle with, uh, you know, hypotension, postural hypotension means they stand up and their blood pressure drops. And I say, you know, advise them on a high salt diet. And they, you know, often will comment. I never thought a cardiologist would be telling yeah. me. That <laughs> be well, let's think about science, Todd, right? It's like, it's constantly evolving. There are no, I mean, as much as I, I hate that term, like, well, alternative facts, but that's kind of the way science goes, right? You continue along a path until you have better knowledge and then you can adjust your path. Yeah. And, and I think that's, it's, it's maybe disappointing to people. I think maybe science has lost some credibility over time because it, it, you know, people don't have a full, uh, you know, understanding of the scientific process and how things can change. I think the media has been part of that as well. Like we, we get these sensational headlines about, you know, well, this is going to kill you or that causes cancer or whatever. Uh, and then later we, you know, another study that shows the opposite effect. Um, but there's a beauty to that as well, because it, 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 it well, like our knowledge is advancing, uh, all the time. I, I look back constantly and think, you know, uh, 20 years ago, maybe I was, you know, young physician and, I, you know, thought I knew everything there was about heart disease and, you know, or the majority of that. Now I look back and say, wow, I didn't know a thing then. And now I'm a lot more humble. I still am wondering how much I, I know. I, I, uh, I, I, I just am continually trying to learn more and it's, I think it's, it's, it's exciting, but it depends on your viewpoint of, of, of the process. Uh, I agree. I think it's sometimes it's disorienting when, when there's something that we think is an absolute fact and then we found out it's not, um, or maybe not. And, you know, you get these sort of sensational headlines in the media about, you know, do this, don't do this. And, um, but it's sort of, uh, you know, it's a process, it's a path. <laughs> if you 
constantly learning. Um, exactly. And, and, and yeah. there are some absolutes, though. You know, like the things that we've talked about here, the most of this podcast, uh, the things of like physical activity, yes. about, you know, nutrition, no about managing yes. stress, about yes. not smoking and avoiding excess alcohol and, right. uh, you know, getting cholesterol levels where they should be. Like these are in blood sugar levels. Like we, we don't need to argue about these. Like I, I, you know, the nuances maybe, but the, the, the actual foundational aspect of this in your health is, I think, unequivocal. Um, I, we have to go in a second, but I, I just want to get your thoughts on aspirin, um, baby aspirin. Um, some people's, and I've read different studies on this. Um, where, where do you stand on that? Yeah. So aspirin is another one of those pendulum things where the, you know, when I was first uh, becoming a physician, everybody that was over 40 or 45 was recommended to be taking aspirin to prevent heart attacks and stroke. The subsequent research did not bear that out. There is a slight decrease in non-fatal heart attacks in people who take aspirin for primary prevention, meaning that they've not had a heart attack or stent or bypass surgery but it's at a risk of significantly more bleeding risk. And so the net benefit is basically zero. The latest data from the U.S. Prevention Services Task Force says that, uh, you know, that, that aspirin should not be recommended for anybody over the age of 60 and uh, people between 50 and 60 with a lot of caveats if they're very high risk for heart disease and lower uh, risk for bleeding, that aspirin could be considered. In my practice, I recommend aspirin for people for secondary prevention, meaning that they've had a heart attack, they've had a stroke, they've had a stent, they've had a bypass surgery, but I do not recommend aspirin universally in my primary prevention patients, but I would encourage every person out there that has questions about this, talk to your doctor about this because the individual, uh, the, it really is an individual shared decision-making discussion between your and you and your physician on whether aspirin is a good idea or not for you. That sounds like a good plan. Dave, can I, can uh, I end with yeah. one thing about blood pressure yeah. that I, I, please, just, please I, tell I us. want to uh, I say is maybe, did we save the best for last? I don't know, but maybe the most important thing for last. And, and, and this is, uh, helping people to understand how important it is to monitor your blood pressure at home if you have high blood pressure. Now, I know you are a believer in monitoring and data and all these things, but in regards to blood pressure, this is critically important because what we've learned in recent years is the blood pressure that we're getting in a doctor's office is not accurate in about two thirds of cases, meaning the blood hmm. pressure we take in the clinic doesn't correlate with what the gold standard is, is a 24 hour blood pressure monitor uh, in, in, in up to two thirds of patients. And so I don't manage anybody's blood pressure unless I, I or at least I try not to, without knowing what their blood pressures are at home, because it's oftentimes so different than what we're getting in the clinic. And, and the last point I wanna to emphasize to people is how you take your blood pressure, critically, critically important. So the biggest thing is you know sitting, straight back chair, your arms supported, but waiting five minutes, not on your phone, not having a conversation, not watching television, but 
sitting quietly for five minutes and then checking your blood pressure. And that's the blood pressure that we really should be looking at and targeting. And I'll I'll give you a little example of this. This is kind of new information over the last few years. You know, I used to take all my own blood pressures in the clinic. I, you know, had this uh, idea is like, well, what's the accurate blood pressure? Well, it's the one I take because I'm the cardiologist. Well, turns out the doctor one is the worst one of all of them. And so in, in our clinic, we did this kind of just study just to, to see how this worked out. We, we did our usual process where people came in from the waiting room, sat down, we weighed them, got their blood pressure. Um, but anybody who had a blood pressure that was high, so is it greater than 130 over 80, we would put them in the room and nobody else in the room, ask them not to be on their phone, set them up appropriately, an automated blood pressure cuff. It would wait five minutes and then it'd take it three times each minute and we'd average that. And what we found was those people who initially had high blood pressure, the average drop when we did it correctly was 20 points. So their systolic blood pressure went from an average of like 155 to 135 uh, just from doing the blood pressure correctly. So anybody who's concerned about their blood pressure or has high blood pressure, highly recommend that you get a blood pressure cuff. I like the ones that go on the upper arm and you monitor your blood pressure at home and you bring that information in with you. When you talk to your doctor, it is going to help them make the best decisions for you. I think the lesson from that is you're stressing your patients out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There may be some truth to it. I, I, I hope not, but maybe, maybe you got a point there. Um, that's great. I have a blood pressure cuff here. Um, I don't have high blood pressure, but I just have a lot of sort of monitoring gear here. And, you know, if, um, if I need it, I can put it on and, you know, do that. So, yeah. And they're not expensive. You can get them on Amazon. They're they're cheap. Yep. Yep. Todd, thank you so much. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's uh, always a blast. All you guys out there with high blood pressure, you can do something about it and please do do something about it because it's no joke. Um, it's going to um, affect the quality and the quantity of your life. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks everyone for joining us on the show today. Great to have you with us. Um, if you have any questions for Dr. Todd, um, hit me up, davidsuperage.com and I'll get those questions over to him. Next week on the show, sort of continuing the same theme, We have back for an encore episode, Dr. Richard Johnson talking to us about fructose, glucose, and all the bad stuff that fructose does. You may remember Dr. Johnson, we had him on a few months ago, and he was talking about how fructose makes us fat, and if we don't drink enough water, that'll also make us fat. Well, he has some interesting things to say about blood pressure and the way fructose impacts dementia. And most importantly, can we still eat fruit? You know, I love apples. Can I eat apples? I hope so. Um, Please leave us a rating. Um, Wherever you're listening to this show today, you have the opportunity to leave us up to a five-star rating. We would most appreciate that. We also love it when you leave a comment wherever you're listening to this show. And if you want to, you can hit me up directly, david at superage.com. Be great to hear from you. Or if you're feeling brave, 801-871-5291. Give us a question. Give us a hard one. Try and stump us. Everyone, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week with Dr. Richard Johnson. 